Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are excited to be starting a brand new series here in uh, Crazy Faith Talk, taking a look at uh, what we will affectionately call weird Bible stories. Um, if you have been a long time Crazy Faith Talk listener, you might know that maybe four years ago, Erica and I did a, a series of stories that were weird in the Bible, but it turns out there's more than just four or five. It turns out, wow, there's a lot of stories that uh, leave you scratching your head and have great insights and purpose and there's a lot going on, but sometimes we're either afraid to explore them or didn't even know they were there or ha- our preachers skipped over them somewhere along the way and never got them in Sunday school. Uh, so we want to spend uh, at least several episodes talking about stories that are maybe a little less known and definitely are strange in some way and explore what's going on. Why were these stories held on to beyond just the weirdness factor? So uh, to start our series, Sarah, Sarah where are we going to go today. So today we're going to start in the book of Genesis because what better place to start than the beginning. So fairly early on when we're hearing about the patriarchs uh, we come across Jacob and Jacob has a twin brother named Esau and they do not get along well mostly because Jacob stole Esau's birthright but he had like gone and lived with his uncle for Jacob, that is, went and lived with his uncle for a few years, um, married many women. And now he is traveling with his family to go back home. And he is afraid of his brother Esau and the reaction his brother is going to have when he sees him. Because years and years and years and years ago, Esau was planning on killing Jacob. So like the question of the hour is, is will Esau kill me when he sees me? So he is splitting his rather large group up in half so that if Esau's forces comes down upon one half, only half of the wives and children and servants and her herds will be killed and hopefully the other half will be spared. And meanwhile, Jacob goes off on his own and is camping on like a riverside or a creekside, some sort of water. There's some sort of water there. And he is praying and just kind of trying to figure out what his next plan should be. And he meets a mysterious stranger. The um, Revised Standard Version says a man. Um, He comes up to Jacob and they just start wrestling in the night and it's this really odd moment where they're they're wrestling and it's dark and they can't see each other and the sun is about to rise and it's getting lighter out and the mysterious person says let go of me because he doesn't want Jacob to see his face apparently and so he strikes Jacob on the hip and dislocates his hip and um Like, I think Jacob says something along the lines of, if you bless me, I will let you go. And he asked the mysterious stranger, like, what his name is. And the mysterious stranger won't tell him, but gives him a blessing and says, um, oh, no, it just says, uh, blessed him. And then Jacob said, 
he called the place saying, or I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. And the mysterious stranger is never mentioned again. So is this person a man, an angel or God? And isn't this also where he gets his new name, Israel? Oh, yes. Yes. And the name Israel loosely translates to something like strives with God. And so that at least lends credence to the, the tradition that somehow Jacob has been wrestling with God or what sometimes theologians call a theophany, a, a manifestation, an appearance of some figure that is meant to embody God, but not imagining that all of God's presence can be, reside in any one spot, but that somehow this figure is supposed to represent the divine. Um, and that because he's wrestled with humans, that now he gets this name Israel, which means wrestles with God or strives with God or something like that. The L in the name Israel is the Hebrew for God. So there's, there's that in his very name then. So, so this is like just on the face of it, weird in that like there's no introduction to who the stranger is. There's no real explanation of why the, their first reaction is let's wrestle. There's no explanation on why if this is God, Jacob it seems to be beating God in a wrestling match for most of the night. Um, and this whole I won't let go of you unless you let me. Like all these things just are strange. And on top of it, as you pointed out, Sarah, this is nested in this like turning point liminal time for Jacob. He'd been on the run and is now headed back to an uncertain reunion with his brother. And after that, after this scene, when he does finally meet his brother, things are dramatically different because uh, Esau, even though the last time they'd seen each other, yeah, as you said, he wanted to kill his brother Jacob. They embrace and uh, you know they, they they there are tears and there's reconciliation. It's like one of these rare moments, honestly, in the Bible where there's genuine reconciliation and forgiveness from real real dysfunction. Um, and it's it's a it's a beautiful moment in the story. But like you're left wondering, is this story a part of why that happened, or is it just is it like all all of those are weird details to that story? The, the, the asking for a blessing doesn't seem that weird to me. Like that's the one detail to me that makes sense for Jacob. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because I think for me, like I always read Jacob as this person who feels like he constantly needs to ask for validation, you know, which might have something to do with his family of origin being, you know, part of a twin set. So like you're constantly growing up with somebody and being compared. Um, and in many ways he was seen as lacking in his father's eyes because he wasn't the one willing to go outside and get his hands dirty. He wasn't the one that was physically strong. You know, Esau is described as like a man's man and, um, Jacob more feminine and in a society that idealizes masculine traits like that's going to be hard to constantly being compared. And so then when he and Esau, like he steals that his father's blessing that's meant for Esau. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's just constantly asking for validation. Like, yeah. you know, he even has multiple wives, right? He has two wives and two concubines and he kind of, he doesn't seem to discourage them fighting over him. And I think that kind of goes back to that root of, 
constantly needing to be kind of ego stroke. It almost seems too and like, asking for a blessing here makes sense. It almost seems like once he steals his brother's blessing, he constantly looks for other ways to try and legitimize or underwrite that he really should mm-hmm. rightfully have it. The, 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 the wider narrative of, J- of Jacob's life, um, there, there's a couple of interesting echoes that maybe this, this story fits into. After he does that tricking uh, of his dad out of the family blessing, and his brother is so angry that Esau wants to kill him, he runs away, and on the way leaving home, he has this encounter with God where he has this vision of angels going up and down a, a ladder or a stairway that... Uh, where we get the, the language stairway to heaven from the, the song. Um, but, um, and there at the end of that story, Jacob's, uh, you know, he sees God and God speaks and says, I'll bless you. I'll go with you on your journey. And at the end of that, Jacob tries to turn it into a deal. And he goes like, okay, God, I promise I'll sacrifice to you and I'll set up an altar for you here and then you'll bless me. We're like, God had given this for free as a free gift. The blessing was already spoken before you've done a thing. But Jacob turns this into a con, into a deal, into a transaction, goes off and has these years with his uncle Laban and burns all the bridges that are possible to burn out there, eventually tricking his uncle out of stuff. And eventually his uncle like sends him away and says, look, you can't stay here anymore. You keep conning me out of stuff. And it's on his way back there that now there's, there's this other encounter with God. But again, God approaches him, presumably, in this in this wrestling match. But Jacob seems intent on turning this into a contest or a deal or something he can win when God is not interested in having a contest. God has this way of like just giving away good things you know like there's there's something of the recklessness of of blessing and jacob wants to turn it into a commodity that he can earn or buy or you know have have documentation that it's rightfully his and that that this seems to be like the the bookend of that of his time away he runs away and meets god on the way he's on his way back and meets god on the way and it it's 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 interesting that there's this finally this change that he can reconcile with his brother after that time away and coming back. I wonder if this is um, like, we don't get the the sense that this is a dream. Like, you know, the, the latter was that you mentioned earlier, Steve. Yeah. But this is Jacob's way of quote unquote, earning the blessings that he has gotten. I don't know. You that... know he, he tricked his way into getting the birthright. You know, he tricked his way into getting, um, the wife that he wanted from his uncle, yeah. like after his uncle, I, I, I don't know. It's, it just, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm being heretical here, but there's something that popped in my head. Like, I wonder if this is just kind of Jacob earning these blessings and earning this name that will then become the name of the people of God down the road. The other thing I've, I've heard suggested before, and this, this sticks with me um, that, for so much of Jacob's life, and certainly for the last you know twenty years of his life, as Genesis tells it, he's been running. That like he runs from one bad situation to another, goes somewhere yeah. new, and basically messes that up and ruins things. You know, tricks and schemes people to make himself rich, and then you know burns it all down and runs away. And that there's something beautiful at the end of this when when whoever it is, the mysterious masked wrestler, punches him in the hip. Um, the end of the story says he limps for the rest of his life. And it's almost like you can't run away anymore, but I'm going to make it that mm-hmm. you don't need to run away. Mm-hmm. That there's like, he's been running all his life mm-hmm. and that's been his only MO. Um, and now it's okay. 
I, I will punch you in such a way that you'll be blessed and broken at the same time. The, the Lutheran in me is like, wait, this is how blessing always works. It's being blessed and broken, not one or the other. Um, and I can't help but think about how like every Sunday we take the bread and it's blessed at the very moment that it's broken and that the bread that, that is, you know, Christ's body can only be shared at the place at which it's broken as well. Um, so there's, there's something to me about that, that the, the punching and the putting his hip out of socket is a, a detail that the, the, the narrator of this story seems to think is important. He even notes at the end of the story, this weird dietary restriction too, where at the end of the story, it says, and his hip was put out of joint and he always walked with a limp. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites don't eat that, you know, hip socket, you know, or whatever. But that's not in the rest of the Torah's commandments for dietary restrictions. So it's interesting that this is like, it emerged as a separate dietary you know, tradition or rule or restriction, but it's not given at Sinai as one of the rules, like, you know, don't eat pigs and don't eat shellfish or things like that. So it almost suggests this is a separate tradition that arisen somewhere else. Um, and that there's like, this is a completely different story separate from their other, you know, food rules. Um, but it seems like it commemorates that this was an important thing that was important enough that Israel's ancestors remembered Sometimes God punches you in the hip socket so you can't run away anymore, but now you finally can face things that you should have been facing a long time. And then if that's anywhere close to the right ballpark, it makes sense then that Jacob, who can't run away anymore, in the morning crosses the river and goes and sees his brother face to face rather than running again. I mean, even the way he'd set that up, sending them all ahead of him so that if Esau comes, he kills them instead of him. Like he's such a chicken heart. And then God punches him in the side um, and now he can't run away. So, okay, finally, he's like forced into being a decent human being. Yeah, we often, and Steve, you even said, I guess you're talking about this, you said, you know, God punched him, God did. And we often think, you know, it's it's God who he wrestles with just because of, you know, the context and everything. Yeah. Does it matter who it is that he wrestles with? Like, does that make a difference in this story? Whether it's God, an angel, you know, uh, I guess I guess I would say there are a couple of places I would be I guess more nervous about the possible candidates like I know there are some scholars who would say this is this is probably an ancient folktale about wrestling with a demon or something like that that then got transformed into his wrestling with God that that seems problematic at least because of the blessing at the mm-hmm. end um generally one one doesn't ask for blessings out of demons um uh and while the hebrew scriptures are a little bit more ambiguous about evil spirits or unclean spirits or demons compared to the new testament that it seems to be rife with demons around every corner um uh that that seems more problematic i guess and then the whole notion of that there's a blessing involved um that suggests a whoever this person is Jacob sees as a superior to him. Cause th- that whole notion of who does the blessing and who receives a blessing. There's all, there's always sort of a asymmetry to that. It's the greater blesses the lesser, you know, Melchizedek blesses Abraham or Abraham blesses Isaac, that kind of thing, or God is the source of blessing. Um, that seems like it's, it's hard to pin down who this is, except that by the end of the story with the name you've wrestled with God and with mortals, uh, suggest that the 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 end of the story, the narrator wants to suggest this has been a stand-in for God somehow or representative of God. You know, I, I don't know if we can be more precise, but that all the energy invested in telling this story isn't just 
Jacob wrestle, picks fights with random strangers and wrestles them, but that somehow this is God has sought him out and and wrestled with him there. That that's at least my reading seems to be that 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 mm-hmm. somehow the 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 editors who put together what we call Genesis think it's that somehow God is in this moment. And I would say with that, like it, it's. I'm not sure that we can say definitively whether or not this was actually God. Sure. But I would say that for sure, we can say that God had a hand in this moment, mm-hmm. um, which I think is what, what Steve mm-hmm. was saying is that, you know, especially with, with Jacob getting a new name of Israel, um, that that seems like such a God moment, especially with these patriarchs, right? Yeah. Abraham, that was that was his second name, right? He was originally a- Abram yep. and his wife uh, got a new name too and got, you know, the name Sarah. That, you know, in those moments with these patriarchs, with Abraham and now Jacob, um, those, na- those moments of getting new names new identities in god are seem to be those pivotal moments in their lives when something new is about to happen Mm -hmm. and for abraham it was the covenant and with jacob here i think it is that reconciliation with his brother and with kind of being able to finally stop running um so whether or not it was actually god probably doesn't matter but I think that God was still the one maneuvering this moment. Sure. And, and even to say it was or wasn't God, I mean, like, I'm not really sure what it means to say it, he was wrestling with God the same way that, like, when you hear, uh, the, like, the story at uh, Jesus' baptism of the voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Is it right to say that's God's voice? In a sense, but I don't mean to suggest that however that voice sounded is the only way God's voice ever sounds, mm-hmm. you know, that like, so we like to imagine it's this booming thundering voice. And sometimes God's voice is this light whisper, like with Elijah, that instead of saying it's God, and that's the only way God can ever show up or that God was a six foot tall person who could wrestle with Jacob, like, no, but like somehow God's present in this. And maybe that's why theologians borrow that word theophany so often. It's a way of saying it's it's God, but it's kind of like a representation of God because we don't really mean to say the infinite creator of the universe who fills all of existence and all of time now, you know, is, is you know, fist fighting with a small Jewish man, <laughs> you know. The, the, the notion of... Uh, wrestling until you get a blessing is is important to me in this story too. I, I can't remember who I first heard use that phrase, but it might've been uh, the biblical scholar, Renita Weems, um, who talks about how we deal with the difficult text. And maybe like this whole series is going to be about the weird Bible stories. And instead of just dismissing them or ignoring them because you don't like it or something, she talks about wrestling with the text until it gives you a blessing. And I like that idea. It's, it's, tempting sometimes to come across a pastor and go, well, I don't like what I think this is saying, so I will either ignore it or find an interpretation that doesn't challenge me or pretend it's not there or something like that. Um, or say, well, there's nothing good that come out of, can come out of it because there's X or Y or Z that I don't like. That instead, that notion of maybe we're all cast as Jacob and wrestling with the text until the text gives us a blessing and saying that God can somehow be in the encounter 
um, the way we're almost talking about God being in the wrestling match without having to pin down that God is the wrestler, isn't, you know, that kind of thing. But that, that, that notion has stayed with me too, for how we responsibly and faithfully deal with our scriptures too. When I think this, um, along those same lines, allows us to be able to deal with things like questions and doubts and, and those kind of wrestlings with our faith. And, and to say that those are okay, those, you know, it's, um, it's not something that's new. It's not something that's wrong, but, you know, Jacob was wrestling someone about something, <laughs> you know, will we ever know the side of attorney? What exactly, who and what exactly is going? No, but, you know, I see in this a, a sense of, so then it's okay for me to have those questions, those doubts and, and those wrestlings with my, within my faith Sure. and to go to God and you know to to go to others you know a, a colleague you know my boss something like that and say hey i'm dealing with this i don't know how to handle this this is causing kind of a, a crisis of the faith for me help me figure this out and then in the end usually a blessing of sorts yeah. comes out of it yeah if, if that if if even if that's just a stronger faith I, I think that that the notion of the act of wrestling is important too. That that when we're dealing with whether it's doubts or questions or some some piece of our our life that feels like struggle, that it's 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 not only okay, but I think sometimes it's the most healthy for our faith, the most the mm-hmm. most faithful response to be honest about it and and sort of bring that with God. Like I don't know what to do about this, God, but you know, like that with that active sense of struggle instead of what I think sometimes religious people say, and I know they mean well, but can be disastrous. Sometimes you'll hear the, if you don't like something the Bible says, you're wrong and you should just agree with what the Bible says, which I get the sense of humility before the scriptures, but sometimes the thing that someone is upset about turns out not to be what the Bible actually says, but what somebody told them the Bible said. And that becomes like this ultimate, you know, power move of, this here's what I say the Bible says you have to agree that or else you're you know you're out you're and so you have to change what you think because the Bible says it well I, I get the humility piece but it's worth doing the deeper investigation of this thing that somebody told me the Bible says is that really what it says um, because there's an awful lot of history of people making those assumptions or making those claims and discovering whoops a clearer reading uh, reveals maybe it wasn't what everybody told me it meant and I don't know that there's a better way to talk about that but rest I mean, it's this active yeah. struggle of here's what I think and here's why I think it. And, I, you know, here's here's how that butts up against what other people are telling me, you know, the Bible says. Um, and maybe I need to do more digging or, you know, talk to somebody who's got more expertise or maybe I can learn the languages or do the study or all those kinds of things instead of just somebody told me the Bible says this. I should change what I think because somebody else told me that. Um, I think that concept of rest with Bible, especially the parts that you don't like, and that kind of rub against you the wrong way. Um, That's kind of how I read Rachel Held Evans, A Year of uh, Womanhood. Oh, okay. Um, Because it's all of the stuff that the Bible says about what it means to be a woman or what women should do, which to our modern American 21st century feminist ears often sounds painful right like there's a commandment in there that women should call their husbands master and like what do we do with that we usually just ignore that um but she lived it out for a year 
to kind of wrestle with like, well, why do I not like this? What is this supposed to be about? What would it look like if I actually followed all of these commandments and laws and prescriptive descriptions? Like, what would that look like? And to me, that is exactly what you're saying, Steve, is wrestling with these difficult texts. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, this, this to me also says, uh, speaks a word about the, the importance for us reading these ancient stories of doing that together as community um, and why it's important that the way we wrestle with those texts is not just alone. It, it can include me and my Bible alone, me praying God like, hey, why did this terrible thing happen in the Bible? Or why, why do I not like what this thing says? But there's value then in talking to one another and hearing not only other people's vantage points, you know, oh, I never thought about it this way, or man, I never thought about this angle on it. Um, but also that that helps us to know we're probably not the only person who's wrestled with or had that question. And to discover that makes it less scary. I mean, if, if, if I just approach it with, if I, if I'm confused by saying the Bible says, I know I'm automatically wrong, but I have no resources for how to deal with it. I'm going to feel very alone and very dumb. Like, well, I don't know stuff. And apparently the Bible's very clear on it. And I just am the, the last one to get up to speed. Something must be wrong with me. But if I can have this conversation with other people, and other people can say, yeah, I've, I, I've had that problem too, or I've wrestled with this, or this is you know, a question I bring too, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot safer for all of us to voice the things on our mind. And not only can I learn from other people, but I find courage to be able to, to share the things that uh, concern me or delight me or perplex me or confound me in a, in a story or a passage or a verse or something like that, because I know I'm not doing it alone. That also says to me, though, that especially for us as religious professionals, whose job often involves organized groups that talk about scriptures, whether in worship or in Bible studies or small groups or whatever, that there's a lot that can be done for good or for ill in the way we structure those. Like mm -hmm. if we set it up and like, there's one right answer, I'm going to ask a question. There's one right answer. If you get it wrong, your, uh, you know, your faith is bad or something. Uh, or if we if we frame things in terms of, yeah, well, everybody's going to have some insight here. We're, we trust that God's present in the room as we're talking about it. What are things that people have to share that hopefully makes it less scary for people to, to toss things out and people less worried that they're going to say something wrong? I think we have this bad tendency in the church that we've been in the church for a while and we still have questions that we're bad Christians. Mm -hmm. You know, or, or that I should have this figured out by now. I've been in the church for 30 some odd years. I've been going to worship for 30, you know, yeah. however long. Why do I still have questions? Yeah. Yeah. Or that the goal of Christianity is to get um, more definite answers and to stop asking questions. I think sometimes we have that attitude that the the wiser in the faith you get, the fewer and fewer questions you'll have. Whereas again, it seems to me like the 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 further in you go into mystery, the the more it should evoke new and different kinds of questions. And the more you connect with other people, that will raise other new questions. And that's not something to be afraid of. Um, but maybe there, there's that old line of Frederick Beekner that doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They they keep it alive and kicking. Um, that like there's something you said about like if if my faith has gotten to the point where nothing ever provokes a question, 
Um, maybe I've confused faith through just blindly reciting Bible verses or creeds um, instead of actively engaging with a world which should provoke questions. I mean, to, to believe in God and live in the world that we live in um, should raise questions. Um, and if, if, if it doesn't, maybe we're not paying attention. Well, and if you think that you've reached a point in your faith where you understand everything about God, then are you worshiping God or you're worshiping your image of God? You're under, you know, right, right, right. And I kind of think that like that sense of approaching a mystery that you can never quite resolve is one of the beautiful things about this story too, that like, just like we've talked about, like, who is it that Jacob is wrestling with? Like the, that there's a sense of the holy of the divine without like pinning it down, or you can only wrestle it or hold it in place for so long. And then eventually God's presence still slips out of your grasp. Um, That seems like that, that's a sign you've got the real thing. Um, Any, any, any God that you can pin and dissect in a, like a museum display case is clearly Mm -hmm. one of your own invention. Any other things that you want to, to lift up from this story, Sarah? I think that this is a great story. Um, it's weird and it's confusing, but I think as we've said in this in this episode, the the permission giving of being able to wrestle with your faith is wonderful. Um, I definitely grew up originally in a tradition that taught if you have doubts if you have questions that means that you're not saved Mm -hmm. and so having stories like this where it's okay to wrestle with confusion and doubt and uncertainty I think is very life-giving so you know highly highly recommend if you haven't read this story recently to reread Genesis 32. Yeah. Well, and and this maybe is a good place for us to stick a pin in the conversation for today, but to say, if this has been a valuable conversation to you and you want to do some more wrestling with texts uh, in these coming episodes, we're going to keep wrestling with stories until they give us a blessing in future episodes here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.